Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to Jude 3 Project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, we're live. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the G3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the G3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Uh, Fuzzle Rana. Did I get it right? You did. You did great. <laughs> well, Dr. Rana, for those who don't know who you are, um, uh, give us just a little bit of background. Sure thing. Well, uh, I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe. And the focus of our organization is to show people how discoveries in science point to evidence for God's existence and the reliability of scripture. Uh, I'm a biochemist by training. I uh, have a PhD in biochemistry, spent a couple of years doing postdoctoral work. I worked in industry doing research and development uh, for a number of years before joining Reasons to Believe about 18 years ago. Uh, So that's a little bit about uh, my professional background. I have been a Christian for about 31 years. I came to faith in Christ when I was a graduate student uh, studying biochemistry. I was an agnostic, and the elegance of the cell's design uh, convinced me that there had to be a creator, and that opened me up to hearing uh, for the first time the gospel message. That's awesome. That's awesome. And and you helped uh, with our uh, free free to ask uh, Twitter town hall. So I'm so thankful uh, for that because that uh, ended up being a, a a good a big success for us. Um, so thank you again for helping with that. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. It was an honor to be part of that. And it was interesting oh. to me to see the kind of questions that that people are asking. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, it's the same questions no matter who people are, uh, their educational level, their, uh, their, their uh, backgrounds, you know, uh, it doesn't matter. Everybody asks the same question. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so we're going to talk about carbon dating. Does this, this prove the Bible? And for a lot of people, it's really a struggle because you see on your timeline things, you see discoveries about dates of things, and it kind of puts you in conflict with scriptures. So we're going to be talking from the topic, does carbon dating disprove of the Bible? And you've done a ton of research and work on this. 
Um, for those who don't know, what is carbon dating? Yeah, well, that technique is part of an, a collection of techniques that are known as radiometric dating. And, and the idea behind that is that there are certain versions of atoms in nature, these are called isotopes, that are unstable. And they will decay over time to produce other types of atoms. So, for example, uh, with carbon, there are three different types of carbon that exist in nature, carbon-12, carbon-13, and carbon-14. Carbon-14 is unstable. It's, it's, it's a radioactive isotope, and it'll decay to nitrogen-14. And it turns out that that decay process happens uh, in, a, in, a, in a mathematically describable, predictable manner. And so you can use that decay rate uh, to actually age date samples. Uh, carbon-14 is great for something that was once alive. And so by measuring how much carbon-14 was in that sample, uh, you're actually able to determine how old that sample is knowing that decay rate. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's helpful. I, I, I struggled in science. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's, it's always interesting trying to navigate through those questions in apologetics if you don't have a science background. So I'm thankful for people like you that are doing, doing the work. When mm -hmm. we talk about uh, the age of the earth um, and the Genesis story, how does carbon dating kind of put um, seems to put, how does it seem to put us at odds with right. the creation story? Yeah, well, when you look at, um, again, you know, radiometric dating techniques, what these techniques indicate is that the Earth is about four and a half billion years old, that the solar system that we're part of is four and a half billion years old, the Earth is four and a half billion years old, that life has been present on the Earth for 3.8 billion years. And uh, radiometric dating even indicates that humanity has been around for approximately uh, 100,000 years. Modern humans have been around. And so you, you have these dates that for many Christians seem to be at odds with the, the Genesis 1 creation account that they, which, in which they understand it to be teaching that the earth is just really only a few thousand years old, six to 10,000 years in age. And so that's where people see a conflict really between what they would understand to be the biblically determined age for the universe, for earth, for humanity, versus the, this um, scientifically determined age for the earth um, and for humanity um, using radiometric dating techniques. How do we reconcile those, those two? Uh, because, you know, when you, if you're a, well, I guess before we get into that, I, I don't want to use terminology that people aren't familiar with because I was going to talk about old earth versus new earth. Could you break down the differences? Because I, I think this plays a role in understanding um, the navigating the carbon dating um, kind of space. Sure. Well, you know, when, when it, the, the, the landscape on this issue is really a very complex terrain, <laughs> you know, um, doing this for a long time. But there are three major views that you see evangelicals holding. Uh, one would be the, the, the view that you're, you call new earth, or some people call it a young earth view, that basically says that the Bible is teaching that the earth is, again, six to 10,000 years in age. Another view would, would be a view called old earth creationism, which would say that scripture 
either allows or may actually even indicate that the earth and life on earth is is old, is ancient. Uh, and then there's a third view called evolutionary creation or theistic evolution. And that view would argue that, again, that the, the earth is old, but this view would argue that God employed evolution as the means to create. So the young earth and the old earth view share in common the idea that God is a creator that intervenes in a direct personal way throughout the universe and the earth and life's history to bring about his creative purposes. Uh, but where the young earth and the old earth view differ is on the age of the earth. And is Genesis 1 teaching a young earth or an old earth? Mm-hmm. Where, where old earth creationists and evolutionary creationists share common ground is they both would argue that the earth is old, but evolutionary creationists are arguing that God employs evolution as the mechanism to create and they would actually argue that Genesis 1 is not a historical description of God's creative work, that it is no scientific or historical content, that it's either poetic or it's some kind of allegory um, for that's teaching theological truth, but it's not a historical document. Um, and so the only thing that the old earth and the evolutionary creationist position have in common is the age of the earth. But young earth and old earth creationists would also likewise share common ground in rejecting the evolutionary paradigm, expressing skepticism about evolution. They both would agree that Genesis 1 contains historical and scientific evidence, and they would agree also uh, that it's, again, a, a historical description of God's creative work. So many times people see this debate between a young earth position and an old earth position but it actually is a little bit more complicated than that because you really have these three major views that view uh, the evidence for evolution very differently, that view the nature of Genesis 1 very differently, and that also view God's mode of action in the creation very differently. How do those who uh, subscribe to the young earth view reconcile carbon dating? Do they assume that carbon dating is flawed and it's just kind of on a hypothesis. Um, how do they reconcile those things? Right. That, that's a, that's a great question. And um, you know, I, I'll I'll say this. Um, even though I'm not a young Earth creationist, I very much respect the the methodology of young Earth creationism because they're starting with scripture, and it's based on their scriptural convictions that that Genesis one is teaching that the Earth is young. And if that's the conviction that you have, and then you're looking at scientific evidence that seems to indicate otherwise, it prompts you to ask questions like, um, is the scientific data that's coming in actually reliable? Are there assumptions that are being employed that maybe are not valid assumptions that are leading people to interpret data in that way? And so the the group that's done the, the most work and the best work, in my opinion, on this issue is the Institute of Creation Research, the ICR. And a few years ago, they had something called the RATE study, uh, which stands for Radioactive Decay in the Age of the Earth. And they basically argued that at face value, it really does look like from radiometric dating techniques that the Earth really is several billions of years old. But they argued that the assumption going into this is that the decay rate for 
um, radiometric decay is constant. But what if the decay rate changed uh, during sometime during the creation week, let's say on the third day, or what happens if it changed at the fall or at the time of the flood? If at any one of those points in time the decay rates were accelerated, you could actually see this high level of radio, what appears to be high level of radioactive decay that we would assume indicates an old earth if, we, if we're operating under the assumption that, again, decay rates are constant. But if we allow the de decay rates to accelerate, then we could reconcile that data with a young earth position. So what they're, the ICR is trying to do, and they're, again, taking, I believe, the lead in this, is questioning scientific assumptions and the scientific measurements and then trying to come up with a their own model for how they can explain the data at hand in a way that they feel is consistent with their their biblical views. Mm, that's helpful. So if 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 one was to take a position of an older earth um, or uh, adopt the creistic creationist evolution theory. Am I saying it right? Evolutionary creation, yeah. Ev evolution. Okay, I had, had it backwards. Um, do do we lose anything as far as the reliability of scripture if we adopt yeah. that view? Right, because, you know, um, <clears throat> old earth creationists would look at the scientific data and, and say, even though young earth creationists are making these scientific arguments, old earth creationists generally don't find them compelling. Um, but And so they, they accept that, that, that the scientific dates are reliably determined. But when you go to, to Genesis 1, for example, the word that's translated as day uh, can mean a period of time. That word is yom. It can mean the time from sunup to sundown. It can mean 24 hours or it can mean uh, basically a period of time in the same way that we would use the word day. Uh, and, and so you're not, you're li still literally reading Genesis 1 as a literal history. It's just that you're arguing that day is a period of time. And so old earth creationists will make biblical arguments for why day is best understood as a period of time and will actually highlight uh, some interpretive challenges to reading Genesis 1 in a way that teaches that the earth is young. And so old earth creationists, uh, would employ the same kind of biblical interpretive methodology as a young earth creationist. It's just that uh, an old earth creationist would come down in a different place as to what day means in Genesis 1 than a young earth creationist. So many times people say old earth creationists are not reading scripture literally. Well, I would actually argue we are reading it literally uh, but by reading it literally, that means we're paying attention to the original language. We're looking at how does our interpretation fit with other creation accounts and how we would understand what those creation accounts are teaching. So it is a literal reading. So I would argue that you're not really losing anything uh, to adopt an old earth creationist position in terms of biblical inerrancy, the credibility or the reliability of scripture. In fact, I would argue you're actually going one step further and demonstrating its reliability. Mm -hmm. Did you always kind of adopt that position or did you start at uh, Young Earth and kind of evolve to that position? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question because I came to faith in Christ, as I mentioned, when I was a graduate student. And I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. 
my mom came from a Catholic background, but she was a non-practicing Catholic. My father was a Muslim. He came to the United States from India, uh, and he uh, was very much committed to Islam. And so he, I grew up in a home that uh, where my my mom's faith had no presence, so to speak, and where my dad's faith was ever present. And so we had. I grew up in a home that had a very negative view of Christianity um, just because of my, my father's perspectives. I was an agnostic by the time I, start, I left high school and started college. And I embraced the evolutionary framework, in fact, as an uh, undergraduate student. And so I always accepted scientifically that the earth was old. And I can remember um, when I was in college having some friends who were Christians, one of them was a, a guy named David Flynn, whose father was a Baptist minister. And David was a young earth creationist. And he and I would have conversations about Genesis 1. And I remember as a non-Christian arguing with David, why couldn't day be a period of time? So, you know, I don't know where I got that concept from, but as a non-Christian with no exposure to, uh, to, to the Bible, other than reading it with David Flynn, uh, those few instances, I looked at it and I thought, well, day could just simply be a period of time. But one of the things that I was really impressed with is that if you looked at day as a period of time, the sequence of events that you see in Genesis 1 correlate in an incredible way with the scientific record. And so when I became, when I came to faith in Christ, one of the first things I did is I went back and I reread Genesis 1. And I remember those conversations I had with David. It's like, well, this is really a, a, an interesting, perfect fit uh, between Genesis 1, again, and the scientific record, uh, as long as you assume day is a period of time. So I never held a young earth view. I always held an old earth view. But as I journeyed, uh, as I can, you know, continue my journey in Christianity, um, you know, I continued to go back and, and reevaluate that interpretation with more and more sophistication as I learned how to read the Bible and gained greater understanding biblically and theologically about my faith. And I've never felt like an old earth position was somehow undermining scripture or was incompatible with what scripture taught. So I've never held a young earth view uh, whatsoever. Now, Interestingly enough, I, I did hold an evolutionary creationist view uh, right after I came to faith in Christ. Uh, and uh, I held that view for about six or seven years as a young Christian, where I thought the origin of life requires God's intervention. But from that point on, God used evolution to create. That was the view that I held. And over time, I did actually give up on that view for two reasons. One is I began to see more and more scientific problems with the evolutionary paradigm. But I also came to the conviction that it's very hard to hold that view that God employs evolution to create and, and, and have a respect for what I thought the creation accounts were teaching, where God is intervening in direct personal ways to create. Uh, and so I see nothing in the text that really supports evolutionary creationism. It supports, I think, God's direct involvement, uh, but um, I don't see anything in the text that demands a young earth view. It, the text allows an old earth view, and I think it even suggests an old earth view. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen people also bringing in passages like a day is as a thousand years mm-hmm. to God uh, to show that 
mm-hmm. his how he referenced days is it's far different than how we reference days. Yes, so using right. that um, passage to help kind of push that point. Yes. Even further. You know, and, and it's interesting because th- that idea is found, I think in first, no, second Peter three, but also in Psalm 90, you see that same concept. And what's interesting is the person who wrote Psalm 90 is Moses. Moses also wrote Genesis one. So that right away is a clue that Moses was thinking of day maybe as a period of time, not necessarily a calendar day. But there's other clues as well in the text. And 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 I'm not a biblical scholar; I'm a biochemist. But you know, I, I so I gl- try to glean from people who I respect as biblical scholars. One of them is Walt Kaiser, and from Walt Kaiser, I heard the argument that on the first day of creation, God is creating a calendar day, right? Light is separated from darkness. Darkness is called night. Light is called day. Well, here we're seeing that the the day, as we understand a day being 24 hours, being created on the first creation day. So Walt Kaiser argues day must be something, a creation day must be something other than 24 hours. It must it be greater than a 24-hour period of time. Or uh, if you go to the, the seventh day of creation, where God rests, there is no evening and morning, uh, which suggests that we're still in the seventh day. And there's other passages of scripture that suggest that. And um, uh, so if, if, if the seventh day is still in play, then it means that the other days are likely long periods of time. But to me, the most compelling evidence is trying to relate Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Because I believe that Genesis 2 is an expansion on the, the creation of humanity described on the sixth day of creation. And when you look at what happens in Genesis 2, Adam is made from the dust of the earth and God breathes the breath of life into him. Then God plants the garden and causes it to grow. So Adam is not created in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden doesn't exist when Adam is created. And so the garden has to grow and Adam is placed in the garden to work the garden. That implies a significant period of time. Adam is invited to name the animals. Well, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew mindset, naming something meant that you understood what it was you were naming. That name described the character of of the thing that you were naming. So Adam was the first scientist, the first zoologist. He was studying these animals to name them. And then none of them is suitable. And so Eve is created from his side when he goes into a deep sleep. Well, all of that activity could not fit into 24 hours. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's a protracted period of time. So to have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 be consistent with each other, I think you have to adopt the view that days a long period of time. If not, you actually create a conflict between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's helpful to 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 think through as we're we're seeing more articles on the date of the of the the age of the earth and trying to wrestle through kind of our beliefs of scripture mm-hmm. and uh, trying to, to, to be honest about science and trying to be honest about scripture at the same time. And it's, it's, I think you provided some helpful, uh, some helpful thoughts for us to think through uh, this, this whole thing, whether you adopt a, a, a younger earth position or older earth position, um, I think it's helpful uh, to think through this critically and not just throw out 
um, hear somebody with an old, older earth position and say, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. Science is just, is not, that's not uh, accurate. Um, I think it's important for us to think critically through these things. One question that we got on the Free to Acts um, campaign that, that you answered was about dinosaurs, because when we talk about this, uh, where did dinosaurs fit in the seven days uh, were they there and then the, the they just couldn't fit in the ark and they drowned. Um, there, there's so many different things that I, I've heard about dinosaurs and, and where they fit in. When you when you think through that and thinking through this whole thing about old, old uh, older earth and a, a younger earth, where do you think dinosaurs fit in, in yeah. here? Well, as an old earth creationist, I would accept the scientific dates for when dinosaurs roamed the earth, which would be between about, oh, let's say uh, 225 million years ago to about 65 million years ago, where they disappeared as a result of this giant impact event that took place uh, called the KT extinction event. Uh, so I, I would place the dinosaurs as being part of God's creation that God created on the fifth or the sixth day of, of creation. That's where I would place them. But I don't think dinosaurs roamed the earth at the same time that humans did. That dinosaurs were long gone before humans ever appeared on the scene. You know, and it's interesting that we've only really known about dinosaurs for less than 200 years. It was really in the 1800s, the, the early 1800s, that we began to find fossils that indicated that dinosaurs existed. Uh, you know, the, the dinosaur means terrible lizard. And the, the name was coined by a biologist by the name of Sir Richard Owen. Uh, but we didn't really have any awareness of dinosaurs as humanity until, again, just recent, recently. And so I don't think scripture mentions dinosaurs. Uh, what, what is mentioned in the creation accounts are animals that human beings would have had an awareness of, with the key point being that everything that you see around you, all the animals, all the plants, these are the product of God's handiwork. These are not things that you should worship, <laughs> but these are things that the one who you, who you should worship has created. And so to mention dinosaurs in scripture would only be confusing to the people that would have originally received that revelation. But now that we've discovered dinosaurs, it doesn't mean that we can't somehow fit them into scripture, even though they're not mentioned. And again, I would just place them on the fifth or the sixth day of creation. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. What would you want to say about this topic that we haven't already addressed? Um, I think the, the, the key point is that um, trying to interpret Genesis 1 is it, the, 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 the big message of Genesis 1, the, the overarching message is very clear. God is the creator. Everything around us is the product of God's handiwork. Human beings are made in God's image which is a, a very, very important point. And because we bear God's image, we can enter into a special relationship with him. We've got a special status in the creation. And there's this six plus one pattern that is established as a, a holy pattern that we'll, we see throughout scripture. But once you get beyond that, how you specifically understand Genesis 1 is really a challenging question. And again, there's, there's, not, there's a number of different approaches that people have taken who are sincere, Bible-believing Christians who love Jesus. And when it comes to now, how do you relate your, the, the specifics of scientific discovery to the, 
the biblical accounts of origins is also a very difficult enterprise. And well-meaning, intelligent people who are doing their best work can come to very different conclusions. And so to me, the point would be we shouldn't divide over this issue as a church. We've got to learn how to discuss our disagreements in a way that promotes unity in the body, but yet allows people to hold differing perspectives and wrestle through differing perspectives. And this to me is really good because it means that if you are a Christian and you are exposed to ideas and science, you've got three places to land. You can land in a, in a young earth camp. You can land in the old earth creationist camp. You can land in an evolutionary creationist camp. And every position has strengths and weaknesses. No position is perfect, but at least there's a landing point. And to me, that means that science should never be a reason why anybody walks away from their faith. You know, or science should never be a reason why somebody isn't, isn't willing to hear the truth claims of the gospel. Uh, and, and so to me, I hope that the church moves beyond fighting over these issues to allowing different perspectives to exist on the table of options that young people and old people have in terms of how they, to make sense of science faith issues. And we can have some invigorating discussions where we, we strongly disagree with one another, but let's do it in a way that we remember that we still are part of the church and we can figure out how to work together uh, to accomplish God's purposes in the midst of those disagreements. Amen. Uh, what resources would you recommend for, uh, for our listeners who want to, to explore this issue a little bit further? Yeah, well, um, if people want to see a biblical defense for the old earth creationist position, there's a great book called A Matter of Days written by Hugh Ross, who is my colleague and my mentor. Uh, there is uh, a book called Navigating Genesis that shows how an old earth creationist would integrate scientific discoveries with the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Um, uh, if people want to see that this issue debated, uh, there's some books that are good. One is called The Genesis Debate. It's an older book now that lays out a young earth position, an old earth creationist position, and something called the framework hypothesis, which is another way to interpret Genesis 1, where Genesis 1 is viewed as being poetic. Uh, there's a book that's coming out in November, Four Views on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design, where Ken Ham from Answers in Genesis represents the Young Earth position. Hugh Ross represents an Old Earth creationist position. Deb Harzma from BioLogos represents evolutionary creationism. And then Steve Meyer from the Discovery Institute discusses intelligent design. And then recently, uh, some of us at Reasons to Believe participated in a project with BioLogos where we debated the old earth position and evolutionary creationism, and that's called Old Earth or Evolutionary Creation. And that book has just been released a couple of months ago. So that's a chance for people to see those two perspectives engaging each other. So depending on how people want to approach that issue, those are, to me, what I think to be really good resources that will get a, a person started. And, and then, you know, they can go to town from that point on. <laughs> And I know you have a, a few books yourself. Uh, what are those? Yes, well, um, <clears throat> there's a number of books that I've written. Uh, one of the, or three of them kind of form a trilogy um, dealing with the origin of life question and design inside the cell. 
And those are called origins of life. One's called the cell design. One's called creating life in the lab. And again, they deal with uh, the, the evidences that to me were very convincing when I was a graduate student um, in terms of coming to the recognition there was a creator. And so these books represent 30, the 30 years since I came to faith in Christ, what's happened in those areas scientifically and how the case for design and the challenges to evolution even become more profound 30 years later than what, what I recognize as a graduate student. One book I've written is called Who Was Adam? It's looking at the biblical account of human origins and defending a traditional biblical understanding from an old earth creationist perspective in light of discoveries coming from anthropology. How do we square those discoveries with that traditional biblical understanding? And then there's a, a, a little book that I've written called Dinosaur Blood and the Age of the Earth, which is my foray into the young earth, old earth uh, issue. And in this book, I, I basically um, look at the claim that there are soft tissue remnants associated with dinosaurs and that that's evidence for a young earth. And in that book, I talk about uh, why I don't think that argument actually is a valid argument for a young earth. Uh, and I also present a very introductory defense of, a, of, of an old earth perspective from a biblical standpoint. Awesome. And um, you have a lot of, you, uh, you guys have a lot of blogs on reason to believe on this issue as well, right? That's right. If people want to go to our website, reasons.org, there's a ton of material that we have, articles, um, audio resources, uh, video resources that people can access for no cost. And, and they can, if they want to jump into the deep end, they can go to our website and, uh, and, and start reading articles. And, and uh, you know, it, this, this is a complex issue. It takes time uh, to, uh, it takes an investment of time to really, I think, get up to speed. But once you do, I think the, the scientific discoveries that point to God's existence and the reliability of scripture are so powerful that it's worth the time if you really are serious uh, in, about doing evangelism and engaging people that may be influenced by science. So I would encourage people, uh, you know, to to be willing to do a little bit of homework because the payoff is enormous. You know, uh, when my daughter was young, uh, we homeschooled our kids and she hated math. And she used to say to me, Dad, math is really hard. And I said, yes, that's right. Math is really hard. We've established that fact, but it doesn't mean that you can't be good at it. And she wound up with a math degree. And so that's, <laughs> that's my exhortation is that sci using science for apologetics can be hard, but uh, it doesn't mean that we all can't be good at it. And if we just put a little bit of effort in, and so that, that would be my exhortation is for people um, you know, not to shy away. And at the end of the day, it, it ultimately boils down to philosophical arguments. If you understand the classical arguments from philosophy for God's existence, the scientific evidence is just bolstering those arguments. So um, if you understand the concepts, you can go a long way using science to defend your faith. That's awesome. So how would people get in contact with you on social media? Uh, well, I've got a, a two Facebook pages, a personal Facebook page, that I've tapped out at 5,000 people and then a, a public figure page. So if they just search for my name, uh, they'll be able to find my Facebook pages. And then I also uh, am active on Twitter. 
and I should probably have written down my Twitter handle, but I, I didn't. But, uh, <laughs> I'll but make sure I put it in the... In the yeah, yeah, you know, I, I'm not... I, this is, you know, we're joking before we started that I, I'm increasingly finding myself to be a dinosaur when it comes to technology. I'm trying not to be, but I, I am. So I never remember, you know, my Facebook address or my Twitter address. And so until people ask me during an interview, then it's like, oh, I should have written that down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has been a great, great time, and I, I've learned a lot, and I know that our, our our listeners and viewers have learned a lot as well. So thank you again. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so honored, and you know, I'm so impressed with what you're doing with the Jude 3 Project. I think you're, you're meeting a really important need out there, and so I, I'm just impressed with what you're doing, and so I'm very honored that you would consider me on your podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.